Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Flattering the Rich, Exploiting the Poor, for Labor Day 2006, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 10th, 2006. Barbara Ehrenreich earned a PhD in biology, but she's made a career as a writer, authoring a dozen books and articles for Time Magazine, Harper's, and The New Republic. Over lunch one day, she and her editor were pontificating about American poverty, welfare reform, and the like, when she wondered aloud how an unskilled but fully employed worker could survive on low wages. Ehrenreich remarked, Someone ought to do the old-fashioned kind of journalism. You know, go out there and try it for themselves. When Ehrenreich's editor called her bluff, she began an economic experiment that resulted in her bestseller book, Nickel and Dimed, on Not Getting By in America, from the year 2001. For six months, Ehrenreich lived the life of an unskilled but fully employed wage earner. In Florida, she worked as a waitress on the 2 to 10 p.m. shift, then as a house cleaner for Molly Maid. In Maine, she worked as a quote-unquote dietary aide at a nursing home and as a hotel maid. In Minnesota, she clerked at Walmart, the largest private employer in the nation, with 825,000 people on the payroll. Although she admits that her experiment was artificial in many ways, Ehrenreich lived in budget motels and dangerous trailer parks. She ate only what she could afford, which tended to be fast food. She discovered that she really needed two such unskilled jobs just to squeak by. And overall, she found herself physically and emotionally drained. And God help her if she ever got sick or needed health care. The unskilled wage earners that Ehrenreich imitated are the fully employed, not the lazy, not the destitute, the unemployed, and not those who abuse welfare. They constitute about 30% of the American workforce who earn less than $10 an hour. They're the people we pass every day who make our American way of life possible. They clean our office buildings at night, serve us at restaurants, repair our cars, sew our designer garments, handpick our fresh produce, and mow and blow suburban yards. Even though these people work long and hard, they barely make ends meet. According to the National Coalition for the Homeless, in the median state, a minimum wage worker would have to work 89 hours each week just to afford a two-bedroom apartment at 30% of his or her income. In fact, Ehrenreich's colleagues routinely worked more than one job, they slept in cars, and they crowded multiple people into small living quarters. With the federal minimum wage at $5.15 an hour, it was last raised in 1996. The challenges that the working poor face are immense, complex, and interrelated. In his similar study of the same people, Pulitzer Prize winner David Shipler avoids blaming politics of the left or the right, 
and instead notes how poverty is both a cause of problems and the result of problems. In Schipler's book, The Working Poor, Invisible in America, from the year 2004, he writes the following. A rundown apartment can exacerbate a child's asthma, which leads to a call for an ambulance, which generates a medical bill that cannot be paid, which ruins a credit record, which hikes the interest rate on an auto loan, which forces the purchase of an unreliable used car, which jeopardizes a mother's punctuality at work, which limits her promotions and earning capacity, which confines her to poor housing." End quote. While some people blame the poor for their economic plight, and at least some poor people would deserve their lot, the lectionary readings this week offer a radically and politically incorrect perspective. The psalmist in Psalm 146 Proverbs and the Epistle of James all blame the rich for the plight of the poor. Rich people, they say, oppress, exploit, and plunder the poor, quote-unquote, because they are poor, as it says in Proverbs, for their own advantage. And if that is not enough, they, quote-unquote, crush them in law, law courts. With powerful forces like that, poor people often cannot control their own destinies. The epistle of James for this week thus considers it a bitter irony that some early Christians actually favored the rich. James pictures an early church where believers favored rich people who were dressed in fine clothes and expensive jewelry. They offered them the best seats in church, then patronized the poor and the poorly dressed by seating them where they wouldn't offend anyone. You have insulted the poor, writes James. Is it not the rich who exploit you? Are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? Are the rich not the ones who slander the noble name of him to whom you belong? James chapter 2, 6 and 7. Later in his epistle, James turns up the heat even higher. These rich people, he says, hoard wealth instead of sharing it, live in luxury while withholding wages from workers, and glory in their indulgence. Whereas people often intimate that their wealth is a sign of God's blessing, James compares their wealth to a toxic chemical that has corroded their character and, quote, will burn their flesh like fire, end quote. Perhaps it's human nature to flatter the rich and to demonize the poor. Even monks who renounced great wealth struggled with rationalizing their flattery of the rich. I've been in Christian ministry for 15 years and had to raise my own support, so I've always loved the biting satire of St. Nilus the ascetic from the 5th century. Listen to St. Nilus. We monks come fawning to the rich, like puppies wagging their tails in the hope of being tossed a bare bone or some crumbs. To get what we want, we call the rich benefactors and protectors of Christians. We attribute every virtue to them, even though they may be utterly wicked." End quote. Another monk, Evagrius, considered it a trick of the devil to befriend the rich on the pretense that they could help the poor. Listen to Evagrius. The devil suggests that we should attach ourselves to wealthy women, 
and advises us to be obsequious to others who have a full purse. And so, after deceiving the soul, little by little the devil engulfs it in an avaricious thoughts, and then hands it over to the demon of self-esteem. The latter calls up in our imagination crowds of admirers who praise the Lord for the works of mercy we have performed. Christians should favor the poor, not because of any political agenda of the right or the left, but because we're called to imitate the character of God. Using a legal metaphor, the reading from Proverbs this week says that God is the maker of the poor, their advocate, and their vindicator, who will quote-unquote take up their case, Proverbs 22, verses 2 and 23. James adds that God has specially chosen the poor to be, quote, rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him, James 2.5. As a relative latecomer to the gospel, the apostle Paul traveled to Jerusalem about 14 years after his conversion on the Damascus Road. In order to present his credentials to the original group of apostles, Paul knew that he needed their blessing, and indeed he received what he calls the right hand of fellowship from early Christianity's leaders. Later, when he recalled this trip in his letter to the Galatian believers, Paul wrote something very revealing about the first followers of Jesus. What exactly did the leaders of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem require of Paul? We read in Galatians 2.10, All they asked was that we should remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And now for further reflection. What has been your experience with both rich and poor people? Number two, how can Christians best help the poor? Number three, how do the rich plunder, exploit, crush, and oppress the poor? And fourth, for further study, see the specifically Christian works by Ron Sider, Rich, rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, Jacques Ellul, Money and Power, Justo Gonzalez, Faith and Wealth, A History of Early Christian Ideas on the Origin, Significance, and Use of Money, and finally, Craig Blomberg, the title, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Material Possessions. For books this week, I review, review a book entitled, Darkness is My Only Companion, A Christian Response to Mental Illness, by Katherine Green McCrate, Grand Rapids, Brazos, 2006. 176 pages. When Catherine Green McCrae was in grad school, she earned her PhD at Yale, and gave birth to her second child, <clears throat> she experienced her first major episode of clinical depression. Five years later, doctors diagnosed her as bipolar. After five hospitalizations, two courses of electroconvulsive therapy, and constantly changing drug regimens, for the past two years she has experienced genuine improvement and stability.
In this sensitive and sensible book, she grapples with what she calls the quote-unquote apparent incongruity of that agony with the Christian life. She offers theological and pastoral reflection forged in the fires of her own experience. The title for her book comes from the last verse of Psalm 88. My friend and my neighbor you have put away from me, and darkness is my only companion. Green McCrae addresses most of the questions you might expect. Why does God allow such intense suffering? Why does he seem to abandon someone who is in such pain? Why does he appear to not answer prayer? Is there a connection between sin and suffering? Just what is personality? What's the relationship between the brain, the mind, and the soul? These are not academic questions either, but intensely practical ones for somebody trying to make sense of profound darkness and disorientation in light of the gospel. I found Green McCrate's chapters on mania what it is like to stay in the hospital, and how she did and did not connect with her various therapists and doctors, especially moving. In keeping with her Christian tradition as an Episcopal priest, she does a fine job at incorporating scripture, tradition, reason, and human experience. She concludes that major mental illness results from a combination of both nature and nurture. As for treatment, she does an excellent job of commending the wisdom of the secular medical community, but also cautioning about times and places where the chasm between the religious patient and the non-religious therapist simply cannot be bridged. A chapter at the end of the book offers practical advice on how clergy, friends, and family can help a person who struggles with major mental illness. I recommended this book to a friend and to a family member before I had even finished it. Catherine Green McCrate, Darkness is My Only Companion. For film this week, I reviewed Touch the Sound from 2004. In this documentary about her life and work, the percussionist Evelyn Glenny, who won a Grammy Award, does for sound what her fellow Scott and environmental artist Andy Goldsworthy did for sight in his film Rivers and Tides. In fact, both films were directed by Thomas Riedelsheimer. My whole life, says Glenny, is about sound. It's what makes me tick as a human being. That's a remarkable statement when about 30 minutes into the film, you learn by, that by the time she was a teenager, she was profoundly deaf. From playing a snare drum in New York's Grand Central Station, improvising with Fred Frith in an abandoned warehouse in Germany, visiting her brother at their family farm in Aberdeenshire, or staging an impromptu session in Tokyo using chopsticks on restaurant paraphernalia. Glennie explores the aesthetics, psychology, and sheer physicality of sound. Splattering water, 
pneumatic hammers at construction sites, a tap dancer, and general urban din all provide material for her reflections. Most of the sounds in the film are experimental, eerie, and dissonant, but to her credit, Glennie amazes us with the complex miracle of one of our five senses. Touch the sound. Our poem this week is entitled Church Going by the African-American poet and professor from the University of Connecticut, Marilyn Nelson, born in 1946. The Lutherans sit stolidly in rows. Only their children feel the Holy Ghost that makes them jerk and bobble and almost destroys the pious atmosphere for those whose reverence bows their backs as if in work. The congregation sits or stands to sing or chants the dusty creed's automaton. Their voices drone like engines on and on and they remain untouched by everything, confession, praise, or likewise giving thanks. The organ that they saved years to afford repeats the Sunday rhythms song by song. Slow lips recite the credo, smother yawns, and ask forgiveness for being so bored. I, too, am wavering on the edge of sleep and ask myself again why I've come to probe the ruins of this dying cult. I come bearing the cancer of my doubt as superstitious suffering women come to touch the magic hem of a saint's robe. Yet this has served two centuries of men as more than superstitious can't. They died believing simply. Women, satisfied that this was truth, were racked and burned with them for empty words we moderns merely chant. We sing a spiritual as the last song, and we are moved by a peculiar grace that settles a new aura on the place. This simple melody, though sung all wrong, captures exactly what I think is faith. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? that slaves should suffer in his agony. That Christian, slave-owning hypocrisy nevertheless was by these slaves ignored as they pitied the poor body of Christ. Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble that they believe most who so much have lost. To be a Christian, one must bear a cross, I think belief is given to the simple as recompense for what they do not know. I sit alone, tormented in my heart, by fighting angels, one group black, one white. The victory is uncertain, but tonight I'll lie awake again and try to start finding the black way back to what we've lost. Church Going by Marilyn Nelson. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 10th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.